1: challenging on those levels
4: listen to on purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app Apple podcast or wherever you get your
5: podcasts
2: you're listening to math and magic a production of iHeartRadio
5: my advice to people especially females we are trained to make sure that we we're protecting ourselves right like not putting ourselves into places that we feel like that we could be exposed and I've learned you have to push yourself to those uncomfortable places because you'll never grow and you'll never learn and you'll hold yourself back from so much good opportunity if you don't get uncomfortable.
3: Hi, I'm Bob Dipman Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing, where we explore the lessons learned from those who use the analytics and creativity of marketing to drive business and societal successes. Today we have someone who has used a marketer's mind across many industries and has always come up a winner. It's Susie Dearing, Global CMO for Ford. Susie grew up down south and went on to have a pretty remarkable career all over the U.S. in industries ranging from telco to home improvement to tech. She joined Ford in the middle of the pandemic, so I'm certain she'll have some lessons about learning a new job in those conditions. She's tackled tough challenges again and again, but always has done it with her famous smile, thoughtfulness, and empathy. She's definitely a a one-of-a-kind. Welcome, Susie.
5: Oh, thank you, Bob. It's so exciting to be here with you today.
3: Well, we've got a lot to cover today on this episode, but before we jump in, I'd like to do you in 60 seconds. You ready to go? I'm ready. Do you prefer early riser or night owl? Both. Miami or Atlanta?
5: Ooh, Atlanta.
3: Introvert or extrovert?
5: Absolutely extrovert.
3: Silicon Valley or the Motor City?
5: Little bit of both because it's merging.
3: CEO or CMO? CMO. Call or text?
5: Definitely text.
3: Disney World or Disneyland?
5: Disney World.
3: Slow and steady or pedal to the metal?
5: Pedal to the metal.
3: Bulldogs or gators? Bulldogs
5: for sure.
3: <laughs> okay, it's about to get harder. Childhood hero? My mom. Favorite Disney movie? Lion King. First job?
5: Babysitting?
3: First car.
5: Mazda GLC?
3: Smartest person you know?
5: Besides you? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Mm. Jim Farley.
3: Favorite food? Mexican. Favorite model of car?
5: Ooh, right now, my Mustang Mach-E GT.
3: Guilty pleasure?
5: Chips and dip.
3: And the final one, your favorite place to visit in the entire world?
5: Italy, the coastline of Italy.
3: Ooh, which part of coastline?
5: The Amalfi Coast.
3: Okay, let's start with today and what's in the news, electric vehicles. I think we must have hit the inflection point when my elderly cousin in Mississippi was first in line to get the electric F-150 pickup. How is the consumer thinking about electric cars, and are we really at that moment when it all begins to change?
5: We are at that moment when it all changes. And I think that a big part of the why we're at that moment is because of the F-150 Lightning. It, changed everything. It took what was very familiar and the most popular and best-selling truck in the country, and it went electric. And all of a sudden, that was something that people could look at and say, hold on, that's familiar to me. That feels comfortable. I can make that step. And because it was so dramatically different than what the where the competition was, for those that were early adopters, it was an easier transition too because it gave them something more than what they had today.
3: You mentioned the point that this is the familiar. What is the consumer afraid of in this pivot?
5: The biggest fear is range anxiety and the charging aspect. Instead of running out of gas, everyone is fearful of running out of battery. And we know that that's a big challenge because for consumers, They know where a gas station is. They don't necessarily see charging stations the same way or at the same amount that they see gas stations. And so that's the biggest barrier from a mindset perspective that customers have to to start to accept. And I'd add one more thing to that. Yes, public charging is a big component of it. But what the big shift that we know that we need to educate consumers is you actually are basically leaving your home every day with a full tank a full charge. And you tell me how many times in a week do you leave the house every day with a full tank of gas? Probably not ever. It's very often that you got a quarter of a tank or a half a tank. So it's a big shift as to how we use our vehicles and the expectations of how we're actually maintaining them and the shift from gas to electric.
3: It sounds like that as a marketer, your real challenge is to get people to realize they really don't need charging stations that much. But how big a problem is it for travel or how many times will they really need that charging station? And how does that infrastructure get built? Is it public or is it private?
5: Yes, we still do need public charging. The infrastructure does need to be built because you are going to need to take your vehicle on long distance. I think the balance there is a couple things, Bob. One is, yes, we are working very closely with the government and with many partners within the energy space to ensure that we can get the right infrastructure obviously deployed across the country, very similar to the early days of having to build out gas stations. Because obviously, when the Model T was created and we saw the adoption of cars, that created a whole other stream of infrastructure, highways and you know, gas stations and so forth. We're at that same pivot point with electrification. So it's going to be a combination of obviously many different entities coming together working collectively to solve that infrastructure challenge of the future.
3: How does the consumer think about the electric car? Are they excited about it? Do they enjoy driving it? What is it that interests them there?
5: We know if we can get a customer inside the cab and behind the wheel, it's game over. And it's so exciting for me when I can sit in a cab with someone who's never driven, you know, an electric vehicle, and it's almost like their eyes just light up. It's like being at Disney World and you go on that first, you know, space mountain ride or, you know, you get to have this incredible experience that you weren't expecting. That's the feel of it. And I think I can describe it, but until you actually experience it, you can't get the full appreciation.
3: So does the test drive take on a new importance?
5: Yes. And it's interesting because I would say that it's maybe a little bit more about not test driving the actual one vehicle. It's about test driving electric. But I think initial stages is getting people to just experience it from a category perspective of electrification. And, you know, Bob, I'll make a really interesting parallel to this, which I think you and I've talked about this in the past. The parallels of us going from ice to electric are so incredibly similar for me as going from landline when I was at Verizon, going from landline to wireless. And, you know, it's infrastructure challenges. And same thing in this regard, you know, wireless phones, nobody really understood why do I really need it until there was that need or you got the first experience, there were differentiations, you know, between carriers, just like there's differentiation between the vehicles and the design and the overall structure of the vehicle, but at really out of the gate. It's getting those people who say, I don't really understand what the buzz is all about. They just need to experience electric.
3: So talk a little bit about the difference in strategy. How do you contrast it between, you know, the pure electric car companies and the other auto giants that are also making a shift? What sets Ford apart?
5: Well, I think, number one, our 119 years of experience and know-how and expertise sets us apart from many of the startups. Number one, because we understand the discipline that goes into you know building vehicles and building quality and building vehicles that people really want you know we've been making seats inside the vehicle and interiors and paint and all of the metal for years and years and years and now with a lot of the the startups those are all learning curves right now they're doing a lot of other things that we as an OEM are just now really starting to perfect which is digital and you know, transforming software and creating services. You take the competitors that are the startups, that's where they started and then they built a shell around it. Whereas we're the complete opposite of that. You know, the know-how and the expertise that we have of building quality vehicles for safety and other things and making it so that it's the interiors are plush and it gives you that that, uh, incredible welcoming sense when you step inside. Now we're having to combine that with the know-how of digital expertise and software, as well as understanding the hardware side. So it's a really interesting kind of balance of what we're seeing.
3: So I want to take a step back and talk about the car. Second most expensive purchase after a home, and more people obviously own a car than own a home, something most people use a lot every day. Often it's a part of work as well as getting to work. How do you see this fundamental relationship of a car and the customer.
5: I see the relationship evolving dramatically. I'm not sure if you'll remember this, but when I first took the job, you and I were having a chat about, you know, the excitement of what this role could be and how exciting from a time frame, you know, of coming in and the transformation and disruption. And one of the things you and I talked about was, you know, it's a lifestyle and really wanting to embrace becoming a lifestyle brand. And I really believe that's one of the biggest pivots for us right now, because lifestyle brands become part of your everyday life. We've been that, but it's been more in a functionality um, component versus it truly being in a surprise delight. But your everyday moments, we now have the opportunity to truly make this ecosystem you know, that is connected digitally to help create experiences that transforms us into a lifestyle brand. And so that to me is a real massive pivot from a marketing perspective, and also one that starts to introduce a very different relationship with our customer. And there's a very different customer when we're talking to our retail customers versus our commercial customers. The vehicles that create, that are part of work, that become part of our commercial story. There's a very distinctive purpose and capabilities and productivity that we need to ensure that we're creating on behalf of that customer. And so we're taking all of those pieces and saying, then you know what, how do we continue to lean in on that and create this lifestyle brand that becomes an ecosystem for you as a owner and as a customer to Ford versus it just being sheet metal? And that's a really unique place for us to lean into.
3: You know, it's interesting coming post pandemic. I think all of us, every company are looking at what is the new work environment. We know it's not going to be what it was. And at our place, I think we are seeing so many of our folks using their car as sort of a mobile office, if you will. Can you give us the download on the connected car? And as you mentioned, 20 years ago, a mobile phone was for making calls. We certainly moved our phone from making calls to managing our life activities. What do we have in store for us with this car of the future?
5: Yeah, I think that what we have in store is very similar to what we've seen in the transition from, you know, cell phones of being send to end and then the transition to taking photos and then the transition to data and utilizing the Internet. And now managing, to your point, pretty much multiple aspects of your life, work and personal. The other interesting thing that I think here is the vehicle has always been more geared towards the driver, not as much to the passengers. You're starting to see that change inside the vehicle now. I think that that's where this pivot starts to happen very quickly because content can be consumed in many different ways and shapes and forms inside the vehicle. I start to look at it more if it's your office from a commercial standpoint, where we're obviously putting in, even in our F-150 trucks, we have a desk that can fold out. You can actually do your paperwork and so forth in the comforts of the cab. We do that with the back and the tailgates where we create services for you to be able to to obviously work. But you're seeing that same exact thing on the retail side of the house where it's becoming a lot more integrated into your multiple facets of your life. Can you take the best WebEx call from your car? Yeah, you should be able to do that. Can you multitask if you're sitting, you know, stationary somewhere where you can leverage the screens of the car? Yes, you should be able to have that capability. So I think that's really where this connectivity and the data that we can capture to better predict those moments for you, you know, just as our phones have become that, that's really where I believe we have the most opportunity. And candidly, from a customer standpoint, is super exciting.
3: More on math and magic right after this quick break.
0: My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant.
2: Just go to ramp.com slash easy, ramp.com slash easy, ramp.com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty,
4: and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, Navigating the changes in relationships and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never seen before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey.
1: I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, is is that my baggage? look like my baggage i mean i know okay that's mine
4: let's unpack that listen to on purpose with jay shetty on the iHeartRadio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts
3: welcome back to math and magic let's hear more from my conversation with susie deering I want to go back in time to get some context on you. You're from Miami, moved to Atlanta when you were 14, two cities that have major transformations since that time. Can you paint the picture of that time and those places?
5: Absolutely. Growing up in Miami, I was still born into a family that was a Southern family. My family was from Kentucky, but we lived in Miami and Miami had obviously so much vibrancy to it. I grew up very low middle class, but I would have never been able to tell you that, Bob, as a child, because I felt like I had a wealth of love and support. So I never felt like I did without. And that love and support, you know, when my mother made the decision that she felt like it was better for us to move to Atlanta, she was doing it to give us a better life. She felt like that she could get a job. She was a primary breadwinner. She had been married twice and she had four kids that she raised on her own, you know, managed to go to work and cook and clean and take care of us and run us back and forth to events and everything else. And I had a very tight knit family. My grandmother and I were very, very close. My aunts, we were very close. So when we made the move, the entire family made the move. Everyone made the move to Atlanta. I had always thought that I'd live and die in Miami because that's what I knew. And I loved it. And then when we moved, when I was 14, where we moved in Atlanta was just a suburb called Roswell. It was such a quaint community, and everything was wrapped up in that community. When I lived in Miami, we com- I commuted to school because my mom wanted to put us in a private Christian school, so it was a long commute. Um, then all of a sudden, I lived and went to school, and my, my whole world was around this city, this little Roswell. And I fell in love it was just easy. I watched, you know, my mom flourish from a a professional perspective. She just had a lot more opportunities. And it was just really fascinating, you know, to watch that as a child and candidly as a young woman to see such a strong woman who had managed through so much hardship and came out on the other side of that. And I think that to me is what, when I think back in those two kind of moments in, in my life, gosh, I feel really blessed
3: Well, it sounds like your mom is the major influence, but what other major influences were at work that created the you of today? And what in your childhood would best predict what you are today in business?
5: Yes, my mom was a huge influence. My grandmother was a massive influence. She ran a company. She ran a gift shop when I was younger called the Beehive in Miami Beach. And as a child, I can remember three and four years old going to the beehive. And I was so excited to watch her work. And she'd give me jobs, like opening up the packages that would come in, helping sort, you know, all the items. Gosh, I loved the adding machine. I remember as a child learning the old fashioned adding machine. I learned how to to do that really quick because I loved the sound of it, like when she would be doing bookkeeping. And then even it was so silly. I can remember when I was in second grade, we had our desk, like you would do uh, board work. And Bob, I would literally set my desk up like an office. I would pull out things and set it up. My teachers would always ask what I was doing. And I'd be like, it's my office. And then I'd go to work. I would do my board work. So I think that it was just always inherently in me. I think some of the other influences were when I was in Atlanta, my aunt worked for the Coca-Cola company and she worked in marketing. And I can remember early on just being so mesmerized by... The customer stories that she would tell and the product introductions that she was working on. And I fell in love with it. It was like a good novel every Sunday night when we had our family dinner for her to come to the house and tell the stories of what she was working on. Just felt like I was reading a good book. So I think that those were bits and pieces of it. But, you know, there's many people in my life that I look at, mainly women, strong women in my life. But, you know, as my career started, or, you know, even You know, I worked all the way through high school, I paid my way through college. There are so many people along that journey that I just stop and think about often and they don't even probably realize how big of an impact they had.
3: You have this, as you probably well know, your reputation, you have this infectious smile and you're always seen as this really positive person, positive frame of mind. Where did you get that?
5: I think I get that from my faith, which came from my grandmother. Oh gosh, you want to talk about a smile. She had an amazing smile and she had these blue eyes that just absolutely sparkled when she smiled. And she was always that person that you went to, you know, with whatever challenge you faced, you went to her because the very first thing that would you would see is that smile would open up and it just embraced you. You know, you could talk about some really challenging and troubling things, but there was always that warmth. When I look back, I feel like that that spirit and that mindset really did come from her.
3: My dad was a Methodist minister, so I always have a great interest in religion. Did you grow up with it? Did you discover it? Or did it discover you?
5: I grew up with it. And then I would tell you that I discovered it. It was part of our rituals as a child. We were in church every Sunday morning, very often Sunday evenings, and back again on Wednesday nights. But I think, Bob, when I graduated from college, I remember feeling that there was this void and... That's when I would say that I feel like I discovered it. I really discovered what I had always had, but it all of a sudden had such incredible purpose.
3: Late 80s, early 90s, you went to University of Georgia. You studied advertising. Were you preparing for this career?
5: I wasn't preparing necessarily for this because, wow, I had no idea. (laughs) I was preparing for Disney. I wanted to go to University of Georgia. I wanted to be an advertising and marketing major, and I wanted to work at Disney. And I did that. That was what I was preparing for. I did say I did those three things. And, I mean, wouldn't have traded for the world because it was the best stepping stone for me to really, truly get a sense of customer and marketing and the power of experience and brand right fresh out of college.
3: Well, you actually worked with customers. You were on the front line there in some of your jobs or at least part of the job.
5: Yes. In fact, I did my internship with Disney in the college program, which they put you into the parks. You're either working attractions or food. I worked at the Emporium on Main Street. And so you had day-to-day interactions with the guest. And then when I came back, I was brought back on a program called Career Start. So I came back and same thing. They put you back out into the park because at that point in time, you could never have just walked into the marketing group. And it was there that I met the director of marketing who invited me to come in and, you know, see what it was all about. And that's what opened up the door to my marketing career at Disney.
3: After Disney, you worked at an Atlanta ad agency where you worked on the AirTouch cellular account, and then you joined Verizon in 2001. Did you see this huge telco revolution coming?
5: No, I definitely did not. In fact, the funny little secret of that is when I left Disney and I went to um, the agency side, I had never thought of myself being on the agency side, but I realized at that point in time that it was good for me to understand the full aspects of marketing and advertising and see it on both angles. So I went to the agency side. I was working on Atlanta Braves and new business. And they came to me and said, Hey, we think that we, you really would be great working on the AirTouch business. And I laughed because I was like, Oh gosh, how boring. I remember thinking this is awful. I just went from entertainment (laughs) to now I got to go work on this wireless stuff. Well, needless to say, I was a little wrong on that one um, because I quickly realized it was anything but boring. But I didn't see it at first. I really didn't. But I will tell you, it quickly came. I was right there at day one when the true transformation from a wireless standpoint started. And as soon as you saw it taken off, it was like, okay, this is a rocket ship. We got to hold on.
3: What did those lessons at that moment tell you about the connected car revolution? You mentioned a couple of them. But it seems to me that probably of your background that this probably is the most relevant to what you're doing today with a connected car.
5: It definitely is. The one real obvious place that I look at and think marketing-wise is the customer pain points. Dropped calls was one of the biggest areas of pain for the customer because you could give me this device. I could pay this money. But now I can't even hold a call for very long because the infrastructure or the network quality wasn't there. We're a hundred percent in that same exact place when I look at the shift from, you know, combustible engines to electric because infrastructure is a barrier. You know, the mindset of you know understanding how to utilize the vehicle the right way, the services, what we provide from a service perspective, there's all pain points and barriers there that are very, very similar to the same thing that we saw on the wireless side.
3: You left Verizon, you did a short stint at Home Depot, and then you took over as CEO of the largest digital advertising agency in the Southeast. How did it feel making the jump to CEO and taking on the ultimate P&L responsibility? And any advice from that you give folks making that jump for the first time?
5: It's funny because one of the very first responses I had when I got the call from my dear friend, Dave Penske, about the role, I said, I don't know anything about running an agency or a company. he was like, what are you talking about? Yes, you do. You've been doing this your entire career. I just need you on the other side of the table for once. And my husband was the first one who looked at me and said, why are you shutting yourself down so fast? You can do this. You got it. And I think that's my advice to people, especially females. We are trained to Make sure that we're protecting ourselves, right? Like not putting ourselves into places that we feel like that we could be exposed. And I've learned you have to push yourself to those uncomfortable places because you'll never grow and you'll never learn. And you'll hold yourself back from so much good opportunity if you don't get uncomfortable.
3: eBay. You became CMO in 2015. You moved to California. I mean, you really went into your discomfort (laughs) zone. You were all in. I remember your time there and wow, were you articulate about it. What attracted you and what was the biggest challenge there that obviously got you excited?
5: What attracted me there was Hal Lawton, who I had worked with for a very short period of time at Home Depot. And he and I just hit it off and stayed in touch when I had left Home Depot and went to Moxie. He took the job as president of eBay right after the PayPal split. And so he called and said, hey, look, I'm out here and I really want you to come join me as the CMO. It was really exciting because at that point in time, because of the split from PayPal, it was giving a new life to eBay. eBay had been giving everything to build PayPal for so long. And that now it was time to put the time and the money and the energy back into building eBay and the brand and repositioning it. And so the opportunity was just phenomenal. And I kept thinking, there's no way I can't make that move to California. I had said no to many Disney jobs in the past that would have taken me to California. And at this point, my daughter was a second semester junior in high school, and my son was a seventh grader. And we'd already moved a couple different times before. And so I thought, this is not going to be good. She's not going to talk to me for the rest of her life if I move her across the country. And shockingly enough, I offered it up to Madison. I said, here's the opportunity that you know has come to me. She said, mom, you should absolutely go take a look at it. I would be all supportive because I'm going to go to college. So what's the difference? I just make it sound like that. I go one year earlier, which blew me away. And so I did, I went out, they were all in, I was all in.
3: So let's talk some about your philosophies. What role does corporate culture play for you and how do you design it and use it?
5: Corporate culture is challenging because there's so many different flavors of it. I think the part for me and my philosophy is I need to be true to my leadership style. And I want to ensure that I'm building an organization and a team that doesn't lead from fear, but they lead from opportunity. I want to ensure that there's a safe place to where You know, there can be very honest conversations because one thing I will tell you that has always been very evident to me is in order for there to be transformation, you have to have respect and you have to have transparency and you have to make sure that everybody feels that they're aligned. And I may not be able to influence that across the entire corporation, but if I can establish that within my own team and influence the teams around me, then great. But I won't falter from really making sure that I can at least establish that piece of it that I can have direct influence over.
3: How about diversity? What's the special power that comes to a company from a strong focus on diversity and inclusion?
5: Well, it becomes a secret power because, I mean, if you imagine that you can bring in diverse thinking and diverse people and cultures and backgrounds and really apply it differently to your, you know, to one, just you personally, it makes you better. It makes you a better leader. It makes you a better human. I know there's so many stats out there about the more diverse a leadership team is, the more profit the company sees. Candidly, I feel like that we still treat it as a pet project. And I don't think that's what it is. It's part of your strategy. And it's part of how you just operate, think and perform.
3: I know you put a great value on family. How do you manage that work-life balance?
5: Well, I first realized that it isn't balancing. (laughs) If I was striving for something impossible, that was never going to, you know, going to help. I do look at it as making sure that there's as much harmony and that I can, you know, live up to the priorities that I set for myself. And I'm very straightforward with my team about that and to those that I work with that my priorities are God, family, and work in that order if the first two things get out of whack, the third thing gets really messed up. And so as long as I can keep myself honest to that, and I expect even my team members and my family to hold me accountable to those priorities, that becomes my guidepost. Doesn't mean that there aren't long hours. There doesn't mean that there's not moments that I have to pull away from the family to take care of something. It's just that I do that with respect and understanding as much as I possibly can. Can't tell you, get it right all the time by any means, but You know, I also expect that I get back those moments in being present when I am with my family, because if I'm doing that for work, then it's at least expected that I can make sure that I'm doing that back for my family.
3: Let's go back to Ford, one of the great American business success stories, very rich backstory about a founder whose family is actually still central to the company, very rare in business. How have you found it and how did you find your way into that very tight knit club?
5: There's something very, very special about the Ford family that I don't even know that I can truly put full words to explain it. You mentioned earlier, you know, coming into uh, auto industry, which I am not, that's not my background as we've just established. The other thing was I came into Ford during COVID. Every one of my interviews was conducted via video and What I found really fascinating was immediately, I mean, even through the interview process and then even my first week on the job, Bill Ford reached out, Edsel Ford reached out, Elena Ford reached out, each family member reached out to create a personal connection. And that was mind-blowing to me. It's really pretty special and something that, you know, I had the pleasure of speaking with Bill before I took the role and I was almost a little kind of awestruck, if you will. And now just to think that, you know, it's an everyday that involvement that the Ford family has in one way or another is really very unique and special. And it's truly what I look at and say, it's one of the key differentiators for us as a brand, not just as an automotive company, but as a brand, because there's a signature, a Ford signature that is stamped on every single one of our products and there's a Ford signature, a human signature that I get to see prominently on the building and prominently in every artifact within our company that just keeps reminding you of the humanity, the humanity that our brand stands for.
3: You, as you mentioned, started your job in the pandemic. What did you discover during that experience that has changed really the work conditions? And what of those changed work conditions do you think are probably permanent and positive changes to the new work environment?
5: I think the biggest thing for me was that it taught me very quickly the power of relationships and breaking the screen. I immediately jumped on a plane two weeks into my role, even when they told me headquarters was closed and that I couldn't come into the building. I said, okay we you're still going to let me into the city of Detroit. So I'm coming. So I, I came here I said, I don't care even if I just stay in a hotel and I work all day, it doesn't matter. I'm going to, you know, reach out to people to see if we can go on walks. And I did. I started meeting, you know, other team members. I was able to, to go into the facilities that, you know, we still had frontline workers, even a PDC into our production facilities. And so I dove into where I could because I knew for me, it's not just that I was coming in during the pandemic. I'm coming into a company that has most people, the longevity here is like 25 years. So Bob, I was walking into relationships that were deep, deep rooted relationships. And I could be the organ that they completely spit out if I wasn't careful and didn't take it with the same energy and pride of understanding that I needed to learn and that I needed to acknowledge and I needed to be part of this culture and this family of people.
3: I can't let you leave today without asking you, if you could give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would it be?
5: Don't be so hard on yourself. (laughs) I think very often I'm probably my worst critic, which I like in many respects, but I think sometimes I beat myself up way too much. And I talk often about the imposter syndrome because it it does, it festers that, you know, it'll fester this thing of, oh my gosh, I'll doubt myself. If I could be my 21-year-old self now, I wish somebody had given me that advice and almost kind of saved me from myself in many regards.
3: We end all episodes of Math & Magic with a shout-out to our heroes and influencers, and we break it into two categories. Those who are the greats and looking at the world of business through analytics, we call those the math people, and those who see the world or business through the prism of wildly creative ideas, call them the magicians. Can you give me your choices for the shout out for the math side person and the magic side person?
5: Absolutely. My math side would be Gary Vaynerchuk. I think he's just amazing. Great business person, great marketer, great leader. He really has just a special combination to him. And on the magic side, the person who comes to mind, and this is really very funny, is Ryan Reynolds. I have been absolutely amazed by someone who is a very skilled, creative talent. Um, one of my dear friends works for him and very closely is his, his partner. And I've just have been so shocked because there's a lot of, obviously, you know, actors that try to get into other professions, but he has such a skill and creativity to him that He's created almost new Ryan Reynolds lookalikes or kind of little models because of just how many different businesses he's been able to really expand himself into. So I really admire that.
3: Susie, you have had a great career and have inspired and challenged so many folks along your journey. Thanks for sharing your insights and experiences and congrats on all your successes.
5: Thank you, Bob. You've been a phenomenal partner and mentor for me, so I really appreciate it.
3: Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Susie. One, turn challenges into opportunities. The pandemic has affected every business, and Ford is no exception. During this time of change, Susie is helping Ford adapt to consumers' needs by creating new offerings that transform Ford vehicles into mobile offices and match this new behavior. Two, History does repeat itself. To develop the marketing strategy for electric cars at Ford, Susie is borrowing from her time at Verizon when the mobile phone replaced the wire line. Susie learned the principles of getting consumers to make that transition is the same, no matter the technology or product. Three, get uncomfortable. Susie's biggest piece of career advice is to speak up about your biggest ideas even if it scares you. It's the only way that you can truly grow. And four, less work-life balance and more work-life integration. Instead of separating the most important parts of your life, integrate them into how you drive your business. This has been a successful strategy for both Susie and at Ford, where the influence of the Ford family brings a powerful layer of humanity and continuity to the company. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening.
2: That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Susan Ward for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Marissa Brown for pulling research. Our editors, Derek Clements, Mary Duke, and Ryan Murdoch. Our producer, Morgan Lavoie. Our executive producer, Nikki Etorg. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time.